Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Colin Gerald author of Up to Heaven and Down to Hell. Our guest today is Colin Gerald Mack. He is the author of this book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. Colin, when you decided you wanted to write this book, how'd you go about doing it? Uh, well, I, I went about doing it by moving to north central Pennsylvania, the town of Williamsport. Um, so I, I was teaching at New York University, where I still teach, and um, back in 2011, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, and so when I heard that Pennsylvania was poised to be the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, I thought, well, that sounds pretty big, and I'd like to get a sense of what that means, especially for the, the middle of the state where there's, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, so-called deindustrialization over the past 40 or 50 years and population loss, what it might mean that now, you know, there was this new uh, potential for jobs and economic growth, but at a moment where the country needed to start moving to renewables and now there's this fossil fuel. And so uh, I had a sabbatical coming up, and uh, my method of research is participant observation, like anthropology, go and spend time and live with people to understand their experiences. And so I thought, why don't I go and move to a community where that's on the front lines of, of fracking? And so uh, I, I picked up and temporarily moved to Williamsport. I picked that area because Lycoming County, which, is the, which Williamsport is the county seat of, was the most heavily drilled county the year before I moved there. And so I thought this is a place where there's a lot of drilling activity happening. And so I rented an apartment in the, in the middle of town and uh, lived there for eight months, although really the book follows, that was back in 2013, and while my residency was quite some time ago, I follow the, the people that I befriended who are the sort of main characters of the book for over eight years. How did you befriend people? Did you just go up and knock on the door? <laughs> Uh, that would be a little creepy, although I, I do like the joke that an ethnographer is basically a stalker. Um, I did a few things. Uh, one thing I did was uh, I went to church every Sunday in three different churches in three different parts of the county. So, you know, and that, that's a way to meet people. Um, you know, as soon as you get outside of town, it's very rural, and there's not that many gathering places, but there was one place that was like an old-fashioned general store where you could buy your groceries or buy guns and sit down and have a meal. And so I went there several mornings uh, a week, and I, could, and I just would spend hours there having breakfast, hanging out, and that was a way to meet landowners who leased their land. Uh, and I also went to a lot of town hall meetings. And, and actually, in small, the small rural town, towns outside of Williamsport, these were very active. A lot of people would turn up um, and, and, and want to talk about what was going on in the community. And so, you know, you kind of establish yourself in places where people gather. And it's small enough that people see an unfamiliar face. And some people are skeptical, but a lot of people were, um, you know, would ask me, who are you? What are you up to? And um, were, were actually pretty open and eager to welcome me into the community. How, do you, how did you explain who you were and what you were up to? Well. Uh, the truth, you know, I said, I said I'm, a, I'm a sociologist, and then usually you have to explain what that is. Uh, you know, I'm a social scientist who's interested in, in society and group behavior, and uh, I'm from New York University. Um, but, I, you know, but the main thing I'd say beyond that is that 
which was true as I don't have a particular agenda or a, a political position. My goal is to understand what it's like to live in a community where this major industrial extractive process is happening and how that's transforming people's experience of the place, economic, social, and political. So I'm really just here to try to gather your perspective and walk a day in your shoes. Were there people who just wanted nothing to do with you? Yeah. Sure. Um, there were. And, 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 and uh, I mean, thankfully, not that many. Um, and, and I, you know, I can't blame people, especially, I mean, some people were maybe skeptical of me because I was, you know, I'm, I was from New York City and I'm a professor. So this was overall a pretty conservative place. And so some people would say, oh, you're one of those New York liberals. And so, um, and that's why. Other people just, it's, it's weird. You know, it's weird for somebody to show up and say, I'm here to study you. Um, <laughs> But thankfully, it wasn't that many people. And, and what I found as well is there was some people who were very skeptical in the beginning, but then they would see me over and over again, you know, in the pews, at a meeting, in a coffee shop. Then they would see me with their friends. And so it's kind of a small enough area that after a while, for some folks, they were cynical of me in the beginning, but now their friends are hanging out with me and talking to me. And so now it's almost awkward that they're not willing to talk to me. And so there were some folks who, and actually some of the people who are the main characters in the book, who I follow, these six families who wound up with explosive levels of methane in their water, it took them seven months. They didn't want to talk to me and wanted nothing to do with me. And then right when I was packing up to leave town, they said, okay, we'll talk to you. And then I wound up becoming pretty good friends with them. And, I would and it was really over the seven years after I left that I really got to know them and learn their story. Did you have many preconceived notions about Marcellus Shale before you went to town? I did. Um, I mean, you know, like a lot of people, I had seen the, the, the documentary Gasland, the most memorable image is the flaming faucets that allegedly, because there was so much methane in the water, you could light them on fire. Um, and so if, if, if my sort of main conception about it was that, uh, you know, was that it was bad and that it was causing a lot of water contamination. And... Um, you know, what I say in the book is, which is too shorthand, but as far as how my way of thinking about it and what I, what I focus on shifted is, when I moved to Williamsport, my biggest worry was whether fracking um, contaminated groundwater. And by the time I left, my main concern was whether fracking contaminated democracy. Um, and so it really became a story, which it wasn't in the beginning, which gets to the title of the book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell. Uh, you know, I didn't really have an understanding, for instance, that America is the only country in the world where typically, unless those rights have been severed, if you own the land, you don't just own the surface, you own the mineral rights underneath, um, all the way, quote, down to hell, as common property law says. And so um, in most other countries, the government owns the mineral rights. And so it's not up to the individual if there's going to be oil, gas, silver, gold, uh, coal extracted. But in America, it's up to the individual. Companies have to sign a lease, and then the individual makes money from doing that. And so there's a huge incentive for landowners to lease, um, you know, for, because they make money from doing so. And so what the real focus of the book became was how individuals have the right to lease their land for oil and gas extraction, and they don't have to ask anybody. They don't have to get their next-door neighbor's permission. Even though it's almost impossible to extract oil and gas from somebody's property without it impacting the, the rest of the community, right? I mean, sometimes it's the worst case scenario of water contamination. Usually it's not, but it's a very disruptive process in a lot of ways. It can, the trucks chew up the roads, there's ozone air pollution from all of the trucks and all of the generators running, um, there's a lot of noise and light pollution. And other people have to deal with that, and that can degrade their quality of life, their ability to enjoy their property, sometimes even their health. And so 
what the narrative of the book became, which was not at all what I was thinking in the beginning, was how we've legally enshrined this right, this private right to lease your land for drilling, but that can actually infringe on your neighbor's rights to their ability to enjoy their property and their health. And so that was something that I did not, was not sort of in my preconceived uh, ideas about it. And it's cold comfort to the people who did wind up with contaminated water, but um, certainly my own view is that, that I didn't find evidence that that happens a lot. It's certainly that happens to you because you know, most people that live in a rural area, you're drinking from your own private water well. Um, but it's, I didn't find that there's, you know, major instances where many people have wound up with contaminated water, where significant aquifers that provide water to thousands of people have been contaminated. Don't get me wrong, it's hugely disruptive in many other environmental ways, including for climate change. Um, but I think that uh, I wind up and I say in the conclusion of the book, it does seem to me that some so-called fractivists, anti-fracking activists, have focused on water contamination and have exaggerated the likelihood or the scale of, of water contamination. Well, what effect does Marcellus Shale have on, on uh, global warming? Does it, I mean, it's as opposed to coal, for example? Sure. So this is, this is the debate. So, so pro-gas supporters say that um, when you burn natural gas, it's still a fossil fuel, but it only emits about a third as much carbon as coal. And so it's called a bridge fuel to sustainable, green, you know, more green energy sources like wind and solar. Um, right now, we don't have the capacity to power all of America on renewables. But the quicker we can get off coal, the quicker we can lower our carbon footprint. And so gas has been pitched as a, as a bridge fuel. And America has lowered its carbon emissions uh, about 12 percent over the past 20 years. And a lot of that is, is attributed to uh, retiring coal-powered powered plants and replacing them with gas. And so that's the sort of positive. Now, on the, other, on the other side of the ledger, natural gas is methane. Methane is also a greenhouse gas. We talk a lot about carbon. Methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas. On a 20-year time horizon of the first 20 years in the atmosphere, methane is 80 times more potent of a heat-trapping gas than carbon. And so when we're extracting the gas, there's all kinds of moments in the production chain, getting this gas out of the ground to market where it leaks. And then sometimes these so-called compressor stations will vent a lot of methane into the atmosphere to prevent pressure from building up to an unsafe level. Out west, where they're drilling mostly for oil, because that's more valuable, when they hit gas, they're just releasing it into the atmosphere or burning it. And so when you take into account the methane emissions, and when you take into account the burning off of gas as we're going after oil, some people argue that that offsets the, the gains in greenhouse gas reductions from um, getting off of coal. And on the other side of it, to the extent that now we're sinking billions of dollars into pipeline infrastructure, into natural gas power plants that are going to be with us for 40 or 50 years, those are sunk costs that are going to make uh, utility companies less likely to want to move to um, renewable resources, right? If you've just finished a natural gas pipeline, you want that thing to be sending gas to market for 40 years. And so then you don't want to be moving to renewable resources because now you've built this pipeline for nothing. When you were interviewing people in rural Lycoming County, what did you learn about their perception of, of land and their connection to the land, maybe yeah. people who had been on the land for generations, and, yeah. and how they perceived the, their ownership or their rights to the land, as opposed to, say, how people perceive land in New York City, where you live? Yeah. You know, I like to say that um, for a lot of people, the land is ancestral, right? Um, it's been in the family for generations. 
it was fairly typical that you would live on a road that bared your surname or maybe the closest mountain would be named after your you know your ancestors and 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 what often happened was maybe somebody's great great grandparents owned 500 acres and you might live on 50 acres so every generation splits the acreage among the children and so you know it really gave people this strong grounding in place um, you could also think you know you could also uh, or important to understand as well was that this is a region where it's very rare that new people move in, but it's an area where people have left. So Lycoming County, Williamsport, has lost about a third of its population from 1960 until now. So the people who remained, uh, you know, this, this is a really um, meaningful, important historical place to them. And it meant that they felt this really strong connection to their land and, 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 and this idea that it's nobody's business what I do on my property, right? Um, this property is God-given. Um, and so, so, so what I often heard, how that relates to fracking is that, um, you know, I would ask people, well, when the, when the petroleum company came to you with a proposal to drill on your property, um, did you think about asking any of your neighbors what they thought, if they were okay with it, since some of them might be impacted? And the, the typical response was, it's my land. I'll do as I please. It's nobody's business what I do on my property. Um, I also think another way that it fed into um, people's support of, because many, most people in the area supported fracking. Um, a lot of folks that I met didn't farm the land anymore, but their ancestors did. And so there was a pride in the land being productive and the land generating resources and being self-sufficient. And so fracking was sort of, it's not farming, but it was another way that now the land was being used again and being productive. And so there was this pride in, you know, in being able to use the resources from the earth to make money off the land and to be self-sufficient in that way. For people who are not familiar with Williamsport or Lycoming County, can you describe it? Sure. So Williamsport itself is a small city, uh, about 28,000 residents. Um, it's the home of the Little League World Series. That's probably what it's most known for. And uh, it's an area that has two small regional colleges and, and a hospital. So it's not like a really small place. It even has a couple art galleries. Um, as soon as you get outside of Williamsport, it's very rural. You can hit gravel roads within five minutes uh, of going outside. And there's not really any town outside of Williamsport that has more than 2,000 residents. Uh, most people there, over 90% own, so there's very few renters. Uh, many of them are living on ancestral farms. It's very rural. There's either state game and forest lands or, or um, you know, farms. Um, it's the Appalachian foothills, so it's very mountainous. There's a lot of uh, hollows and, you know, mountain hollows and valleys. Quite conservative. Uh, the county went over 70% for Trump in both the 2016 and 2020 election. And my guess is if you took out Williamsport, which is more liberal, and just focused on the rural surrounds, it would probably be more like 90% um, voting conservative. So it's a very, and I, I say not only conservative, but really even libertarian place. Uh, people just want to be left alone, very distrustful, not only of federal, but even of state government. Um, you know, really only believe that people ought to regulate themselves or maybe believing in government local regulation at like the county or the municipal level. How was the economy before Marcella Shale came along? Not so good. Uh, you know, this is a place, as I've alluded to, um, you know, many of the, it, it was a small, but it did, was a small but robust manufacturing center up through the 70s. And uh, like so much of the so-called Rust Belt, a lot of these manufacturing jobs dried up and moved offshore. 
And so it was a place that was sort of struggling to find its new economic foothold that saw its population decline as people moved out of the area chasing opportunity. Um, I will say that the existence of two regional hospitals and two small colleges and a federal courthouse mean that there is a professional class there. Um, you know, so it, was, it's not, it wasn't entirely dependent on manufacturing. But it definitely was a place that was hoping to revive its manufacturing base. And then fracking comes in and all of a sudden offers the promise of being this new manufacturing blue-collar um, industry. When did fracking start coming in? Around 2007, 2007, 2008. Um, I mean, there was the so-called landmen, which are these independent contractors hired by the petroleum agencies to go door to door and knock on doors and try to get people to lease. Uh, people reported landmen knocking on doors around 2006 or 7. And once they started locking up leases, then you saw drilling really move in in 2007, 8. The so-called boom years of fracking, of where there was a lot of drilling happening in this area were around 2009 to 2012. Can you describe how it works? Sure, absolutely. So uh, you, erect, you erect a drilling rig, and uh, you drill down vertically, and the gas is trapped in a layer of shale rock, the Marcellus shale, which is in many places around a mile underneath the surface. And so if you just drill down into that shale rock and hit it, you, because the gas is trapped in the rock, you would barely get any of it. So the innovation is, with a remote control drill bit, you drill down, and as you approach the shale, you, that remote control drill bit starts to be turned so that when it hits the shale layer, it drills horizontally through the shale layer. And you can actually drill horizontally for about two miles. So you drill through the shale layer, and then this, what is actually the fracking part, hydraulic fracturing, is you pump millions of gallons of water at incredibly high volume down into that wellbore. And, and then it's mixed with some chemicals and uh, sand or artificial sand. And that what that water does is the water breaks open the shale, the shale, uh, the cracks in the shale. And as small as that, that, that sand is, it holds the cracks open just enough that the gas can flow back out and up the hole. And uh, so what they do is they lease up a bunch of people, and then they drill wells. And on a one well pad, which they clear about four to five acres, you could put upwards of 15 to 20 wells. And so you can have a lot of wells on one well pad. And then since you can drill horizontally for so far, you can access underneath a bunch of different people's properties without them necessarily having to host any infrastructure on their surface. When the natural gas comes out of the ground, what, what form is it in? Is it a gas? Yes. It's very pure in Pennsylvania, and so it's, it's gas, and there's, there, there are some liquid impurities, but it's so pure and almost pipeline ready that what they do is right at the well pad, they have these little, they're like metal sheds called a dehydrator, where on site they just burn off the impurities, and then it directly goes to a gathering line, which pushes it to a bigger pipeline, which pushes it to East Coast energy markets. How do they get it out of there without, before pipelines? Uh, they don't. So, so this is where often, and people complain about this, if you've drilled and it's not yet hooked up to a pipeline, what they might do is flare it. So they'll burn, they'll just burn off at a smokestack uh, the, the gas on site. And so you'll see these huge 50 to 80 foot high flares, uh, you know, a fire um, roaring like a jet engine. And sometimes they'll do that for days until they can hook up. Um, so they run, they'll run their pipelines first, so they already have pipelines, and then it's just a matter of connecting it to a small, what they call a gathering line, directly from the well pad to an existing pipeline. Where do they get the water? 
So they get the water all over. So for instance, um, some landowners, it's in their lease that the companies will, if you have a pond or a creek, usually a creek, if you have a creek or a river that they can they can suck the water out of your the creek on your property. Um, some townships are selling their creek water. And so you'll see uh, uh, like dozens of big rig trucks lined up next to a creek and they'll withdraw water. Um, and it takes an awful lot of water to frack a well. To frack one well, can take up to five million gallons of water. Five million. They have. They're. They're able to get that many gallons of water locally. Yes. Yep. And what about you? Write a lot about truck traffic, and noise, light pollution, and noise. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you just so if you think about what I just said, so you to frack one well one time takes five million gallons of water. On one well pad, you could put eighteen wells. Uh, that's a lot of truck traffic, right? I mean, because generally how they bring it to site is a tanker truck. And so, so I think the estimate is t the water for one well might require 1,400 big rig trucks. Uh, and then you also figure there's going to be big rig trucks bringing the sand. There's going to be big rig trucks bringing the other drilling equipment. Um, and, and then there's also trucks bringing uh, mobile homes where, where when, they're, when they're actively on a well site, they'll set up mobile homes for the workers to live. And so what that can mean is uh, dozens or even hundreds of, you know, of trucks, big rig truck caravans, often on roads that can't handle them, sometimes even gravel roads. And so people got really upset because they would chew up the roads and create these massive uh, potholes. And as I've already mentioned, flaring, I mean, there were some people I met that would leave town when they flare because that's five days of this, you know, this uh, fire that's making the night sky orange that's so loud that it's louder than a jet engine. Even if you close your windows and put earplugs in, you can't sleep. Uh, you know, there's, there's all of the noise, uh, the sounds. You know, a lot of people say, I live out here because it's the quiet, it's the country. Uh, but now I hear, you know, uh, generators all day, and I hear these drilling rigs, and I hear the flaring. Um, so there's all these ways that, you know, that it can really impact your quality of life. Were you allowed to visit sites? Um, yes. So the one thing is that if, if uh, I mean, the, the gas companies didn't always like it, but if they're drilling in somebody's backyard, uh, the owner of that property can invite me right up to the edge of the well pad. I can't get on the well pad, but you can, you know, you're about 80 feet from the drilling rig or from the equipment. Um, and so, so I, a couple of landowners I befriended um, let me onto the site. The other thing is, which we haven't talked about yet, but Pennsylvania has leased uh, quite a bit of acreage of state land for drilling. So there's a lot of gas drilling on state forests. And there, as long as there's not, they're not actively drilling, you are legally allowed onto a well pad. You can walk right onto it. Um, and so I spent a lot of time volunteering in Tyadon State Forest. I was painting rail trail gates and, so, and hiking there. And so there I walked around on an awful lot of gas installations, yes. You write about a situation where you came across a road on state land that, where there's a chain across and a guy wouldn't let you in? Yes. Yeah, so this is this is something that um, I, I, I view as very problematic. So, um, you know, for safety reasons, if they are actively working in an area, they can put they can block access temporarily to a road because it could be unsafe if there's a caravan of big rig trucks and you're driving your car, you know, along these narrow roads. But what I found the patrolling companies often did was they had security guards everywhere and they would illegally tell you that you couldn't go places that you were legally allowed to go. So they would block access, tell me that it was private and that I wasn't allowed to go somewhere. I got chased off of public roads. And I know that it was illegal because I befriended the district forester who worked for the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. 
And he would tell me, no, you are allowed to go there. They cannot tell you that. And there was one time where with him, we were walking around the edge of a well pad and a, and a uh, security officer said, you are on private property. She didn't know who he was. And he said, we're not on private property. We're on state land. And she said, you can't, you have to leave. She asked for our identification. She wrote down her license plate number, which she's not allowed to do any of. And it was only when he revealed that he was a district forester that she very, you know, was very embarrassed and said, well, I'm just following what my supervisor said. So I talk about there's all these ways that the petroleum industry is policing access to state forests in ways that go well beyond safety and that go well beyond what they're allowed to do. And I think it's there. They don't want they're afraid of people poking around, taking pictures, seeing things that might make them look bad, that might catch them doing things they're not supposed to be doing. What did you learn about the leasing process? <laughs> uh, that uh, it's, you know, that the petroleum industry holds all the cards. It's very difficult for people to get a fair lease. So I should, I should note that um, in this area, it was, you know, there's a history not of fracking, but of occasional drilling of vertical wells, just searching for pockets of gas, which are minimally disruptive. So it's why that matters is there's a lot of people who their parents or their grandparents had signed a lease for very little, $5 an acre for a very small local uh, company to have an opportunity to, to poke a hole somewhere and see if there was a pocket of gas. And so what the petroleum companies did when they came around uh, for fracking was they could look up people's leases and see who had held a lease before. And so they kind of presented themselves as, hi, we're just, you know, we're, we're here, we're going to, you know, we're, and we're going to offer you more money. You still only get $5 an acre. We're going to, we'll offer you $25 an acre, $50 an acre. And so they really minimized they didn't provide a lot of times a lot of information about how much more disruptive horizontal drilling and fracking was going to be than vertical drilling. And so a lot of people were under the impression that, oh, well, my parents or my grandparents had signed a lease. This lease will be just like that. I won't even know they're here or nobody will ever do anything. And this is a little bit more money, so I'll sign it. I mean, another thing that so people didn't and often what the so-called landmen would say is that this is a standard lease implying that there's not really room for negotiation. This is the lease that everybody gets. And there's tons of room for negotiation. People that held out, that joined with other landowners to collectively bargain, people that hired a lawyer, um, you know, they wound up getting much more money per acre. So I met people who got as little as $5 an acre. I met people that got as much as $2,000 per acre. Um, I also met people who but very few who were able to negotiate, well, I'm only gonna let you drill underneath my property from somebody else's property, so I will never even notice that you're here, right? I mean, if they're drilling horizontally a mile underneath your property, you're, you're not gonna feel anything from that. Um, versus if you wind up with a five acre clearance with this massive well pad right in your backyard, that's a major disturbance. Um, the other last thing I'll say about this is that another thing people really didn't understand was in a way how much when you sign that lease, you become a tenant on your own property. So I, I write a lot about this person, George Hagemeyer, who, uh, you know, when he, after he signed the lease, he didn't know that the lease meant that they could withdraw 275,000 gallons of water per day from the creek running through his yard. He didn't know that they could install this huge telephone pole with a satellite antenna on stop that, that he could see from his, from his um, kitchen. He didn't know that they put a security camera up. And when he took a shortcut across the well pad to go to another part of his field, he got a notice that the security camera caught him trespassing on the well pad. 
and that he could be arrested. Um, and so there's all these ways that people didn't really understand how much of their, their land sovereignty, their autonomy, their control over their property they had given up when they signed a lease. You said you went to town meetings that covered this topic. What were they like? Yeah, they were, you know, they were pretty contentious a lot of times. Now, I should say, I, I've already I said this, but to, to, to put a finer point on it, on the whole, most people supported fracking. They, they thought it was good for the economy. They were not against extraction of fossil fuels overall. Um, they were pretty cynical about environmental regulation. And so on the whole, people supported fracking. But what happens is every time a new um, gas well is going to be drilled, there's a permit hearing. And, and a board of supervisors of a township has to approve that permit. But so even though people supported fracking, that doesn't mean that they don't have concerns about the truck traffic, concerns about living next door to, if a giant drilling rig is coming. And so a lot of times, you know, these hearings would be pretty packed and people would turn up and they would say, I'm worried about this many trucks and the school buses, you know, on the road, if that's going to be safe. I'm worried about, like, you're not testing water wells far enough away. Like, I, even though I live... 4,000 feet away, and you don't have to test water there. I'm concerned that I might wind up with water contamination. And so a lot of people would turn up. They would testify about concerns that they would have. And then what happened universally is no matter the, what the concerns were that people raised, the Board of Supervisors would approve the permit hearing. And that bothered people because what normally happens with other land uses is that if people show up and express concerns, and the concerns are well-grounded and well-researched, the Board of Supervisors may deny a certain land use or say you're only going to allow it if you've addressed these safety concerns. And what people were, were upset to discover is that Pennsylvania, like many other oil and gas producing states like Texas, like Colorado, uh, have taken away municipalities' ability to control fracking locally. So it used to be the case that um, and in many other land uses, municipalities, whether through zoning or through a so-called home rule charter, could control land uses. And so people had an expectation that, for instance, that if they raised certain objections about, about a new well being drilled, that those objections would have to be rectified. But they didn't. As long as a new uh, gas well permit you know, a proposal met the state minimum requirements as far as how far it was set back from a water well and the like, noise mitigation, Board of Supervisors were powerless to overturn these permits. And so people were really upset. They saw it as, um, you know, as, as an assault on democracy because their idea, their, you know, their, their strong belief was I should be able to show up at a meeting and if I express concerns that, that are grounded in actual fact, that you have to address those concerns. Yeah, you write, um, placing a cell tower in one's yard or getting a liquor license for a new business required more public input than leasing. This yes. was no accident. It was by industry and federal and state government design. Why, yeah. why were they so open to it, the yeah. federal and state government? You know, um, in all, Pennsylvania, like Texas and Colorado, have, are, have an overwhelmingly conservative legislature. And, and I should also add, by the way, that while recently... Democrats have become more um, skeptical about fracking until quite recently, fracking enjoyed strong bipartisan support. You think about President Obama bragged about how much oil and gas drilling he had opened up on federal lands. It was former Governor Ed Rendell who leased the state forest for drilling. And so even among Democrats, there because jobs, jobs, this brings jobs, it's always about jobs. And so um, 
the, you know, the, the state legislature and the and, and, and Ed Rendell and after him Corbett, I mean, Tom Corbett, his number one, um, you know, uh, contributor of campaign funds was the oil and gas industry. So they were very eager to entice the petroleum industry and very worried that the industry might prefer to drill more and set up operations in neighboring states like New York and West Virginia. And so they wanted to be as accommodating to the industry as possible. And so, for instance, Pennsylvania is the only state of the 33 oil and gas producing states. Pennsylvania is the only state that does not have a severance tax. It does not tax the companies for the gas that they extract and sell out of state. And that was a very explicit move to entice the companies to come. And so the petroleum industry said, look, we don't want it can't this is really going to stymie our ability and our interest in drilling here if every time we move to a new town or a new county we face different zoning requirements and so the 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 you know the 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 uh Conservative legislature and governor were all too eager to say, fine, great, no problem. What we will do is we will take away municipalities' ability to regulate fracking locally. Did it work? I mean, did like having a low, no local regulation and uh, no severance tax bring uh, companies here who might have gone to other states? It sure did, yeah. And there was, you know, there was a... Uh, a pretty nice boom for a while. Um, you know, I mean, even if you just take Williamsport, as small as it is, 28,000 residents, um, five new hotels built in a span of six years because so many workers were coming in from out of state. Proliferation of new restaurants, many of them catering to work to employees coming up from Texas. So like a Texas barbecue restaurant. Uh, Halliburton set up a facility in Muncie. It employed 600 people. Um, you know, so there was this really brief period where there was a nice boom. Also, what Pennsylvania did do was, while they didn't have a severance tax, they created what's called an impact fee, where for every well drilled, the township where that well was drilled would get some money. And so you saw very small townships was had very low operating budgets, all of a sudden in some years getting like $400,000 from impact fees, which is a lot of money for a township that might only have 2,000 residents, that they can buy a new salt truck, that they can fix a guardrail. Um, what, I, what I think what's important to recognize is how short that boom lasted. I mean, we're really talking about by 2016, the boom went bust. The hotels were operating at half vacancy. Uh, Halliburton went from 600 employees to only 40 employees. Uh, right now, there are fewer drilling rigs in Pennsylvania than before the fracking boom started. And so for a while, there was this really great boom. It was an incredibly short period of time. Um, and it does not seem like it, it, uh, you know, it generated you know, sustaining, family-sustaining jobs. It now seems like most of the wealth created left the area. Why did it go bust? Well, you know, we drilled so many darn wells that the price of gas went super low. And fracking is really expensive. While we've mastered the technology, it's a really expensive way of getting gas versus the old-fashioned way that you just drill a vertical hole and hope that you hit a pocket of gas. And so basically, we, there was such a glut of gas that it was costing more to drill than the gas we were getting out of the ground. And so um, the gas couldn't be sold. And so you saw companies stop drilling. You saw some companies actually capping gas wells um, so that they were no longer producing, uh, producing gas. Huge consolidation uh, you know, in the industry. You saw smaller companies going out of business. Some of the big players, Chesapeake, which was one of the first companies to lease wells, uh, you know, in the, to, to snatch up leases, declaring bankruptcy. Um, Anadarko, one of the big actors, sold all of its assets and moved out of the area entirely. 
Can you compare the, the, the rise and, and peak and decline of the natural gas industry with what happened in Pennsylvania with the coal industry? Sure. Um, you know, what I would say is it, it, was a, it was a much more abbreviated cycle. I mean, at least, you know, even coal and, 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 and actually even in Lycoming County, the big boom there was timber. There was about 30 years where in the late 1800s where Lycoming County claimed to mill the most board feet of lumber of anywhere in the world. And there's all these beautiful mansions on, our, on 4th Street called Millionaire's Row where lumber barons, uh, you know, built these huge immaculate homes because they made so much money. At least that boom and at least coal provided a fair number of jobs for decades. I mean, here, and gas might yet make some kind of comeback, but the scale of the boom and bust cycle, at its peak, it employed far less people than either of those prior booms. And the, its peak was much shorter in time. Did the governments respond in the same way? I mean, like a limited regulation for the coal industry, limited regulation for natural gas? Yes. Did, did they learn anything from what happened no. to coal and apply it? No, they did not. In my opinion, they did not. And it's counterintuitive in a way, but um, one thing that social science researchers have found that study the boom-bust towns or extract towns and, and areas of the country that rely on extractive resources is that if an, when a new extractive industry moves in, having had a history of prior resource extraction makes you more likely to support it and less likely to resist it than communities where this is something new, where extraction is new, even if those prior extractive industries were detrimental. And so there's something about having a familiarity with it that actually makes people more likely to support it, both everyday residents and the politicians. Did uh, the, the boom while it was going on create many jobs for local people or were they all Texans? This is, you know, this is really debated. Uh, it's very, very hard to get good numbers on this. So anecdotally, what a lot of skeptics say is you look at all those hotels built, which means it's non-locals coming up. On the road, you see all of these pickup trucks with license plates from Texas, Colorado, North Dakota. And skeptics say, well, that, that gives me evidence that most of these jobs that are, that are created, people are saying are new jobs in the area, are actually people coming from out of state. Now, the Corbett administration and the, you know, the um, American Petroleum Institute put out a series of studies that had you know, large numbers, 200,000 jobs created in Pennsylvania for Pennsylvania residents. Um, you would see these numbers. You know, I remember when, when, when Trump was running for re-election against Biden, he once put out a number saying 900,000 jobs in Pennsylvania created uh, for the oil and gas industry. I wrote an essay that, you know, and I'm not the first to say this, but when you really dig in, there was a lot of chicanery around how you count uh, a, an industry job or a job supported by industry. So, for instance, in some of those numbers, they would include so-called ancillary jobs, which provided services for the industry. So in some counts, somebody driving a UPS truck counts as an ancillary job because the UPS delivers packages for the oil and gas industry. Uh, there was also some reports that counted if somebody quits a job and somebody else takes that job, counting that as a new job, even though that's actually not a new job. That's a change of, of, of somebody for a job that, you know, has not been added. And so it's, it's really tough to get good numbers, but my hunch is it did not generate that many jobs. One recent report I read said that the number of actual jobs created that for Pennsylvania residents was around 20-something thousand, 27, 28,000. 
How many are still around? How many <laughs> of those jobs still exist? That's an even harder thing to guess, uh, to, to know. Um, but, I, you know, if you, if you look on the whole at how much the industry has declined, my hunch would be, you know, maybe, maybe two-thirds or half of those. Can you tell the story about the poor shot, the land owned by the poor shot club and, yeah. and the, Mr. McLean who owned the, the sure. land nearby? And I think this really, and that's a, great, that's a great story to illustrate this tension I talked about between how you have the private right to lease your property, even though it can infringe on other people's rights. So uh, Scott McLean lived at the, uh, the dead end of a gravel road at the base of a mountain. And up at the top of the mountain was a hunting camp. Uh, a group of people who owned a thousand acres collectively where they had a, a cabin and they would go and hunt. And so it was very difficult to access the hunting camp. And so um, long before fracking came along, the hunting camp had gone to Scott McLean as their neighbor and said, can we build an extension of your driveway that would go up the mountain so that we can get to our hunting camp? We could drive right up to our cabin without having to drive part way and then walk up the mountain. And Scott said, sure, this was a common thing for people to do. Uh, and, and, and to be neighborly, Scott even le created a legal e easement that granted permanent access to the hunting camps that if he ever sold the property, the new owner couldn't prevent Porshot from um, using the driveway. Fast forward a decade and a half, oil and gas comes along, Porshot leases 1,000 acres. That's a lot of money. And then they're getting royalties every month off of that production. So basically, that hunting camp is getting millions of dollars. Um, but to frack those wells, that means all of these big rig trucks driving up this gravel driveway right through the middle of Scott's property. I mean, his house sat about eight feet from that driveway, and his garage sat on the other side. And so can you imagine you've got a gravel driveway on the base of a mountain surrounded by nothing but woods and a caravan of dozens of big rig trucks driving um, within spitting distance of your house. And aside from how disruptive that was with noise and everything else, um, it actually cracked the foundation of his house, his chimney collapsed, um, and he was powerless to do anything about it. And he, you know, he asked the hunting camp to, to, to tell the company they couldn't, you know, the petroleum company, they couldn't use the driveway. But of course, the, hunt, the petroleum company said, well, this is the way, we're not going to even bother to drill here if we have to build another driveway around the other side of the mountain. That's a huge expense. The, 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 the hunting camp said, well, it's our legal right to use the driveway this way. Uh, and so it was a huge fight. Scott basically, in the end, not only was there all this damage to his property, he actually walked away from it. He moved out. Um, he got a settlement, but it was so small it didn't even pay for, for the house. And in the meantime, before he moved out, he, uh, you know, he got he sat down and his, his wife at the time sat down and like to try to prevent the trucks from coming a sort of protest. Um, Scott got arrested for the the allegation. He, so Scott was a registered gun owner. And the allegation of the, the petroleum company workers was that he threatened them with his gun. Uh, and so it was hugely contentious. And, and in the end, you know, he really lost a lot of fundamental rights to enjoy his own property uh, based on the, the, the petroleum, I mean, based on poor shot hunting camp uh, have exercising their right to lease their land. Did you get to know people, local people who were organized against uh, fracking? Yes. Um, I should note that there's not many of them. Um, you know, there was, there was very, very little 
organic local resistance to fracking. Um, there was a lot of activity of activists who would come from other places, so like from Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or New York City, and would come in and stage a protest. But there was there's one local group, they're still there, the Responsible Drilling Alliance, which has about 12 to 15 very active core members, uh, more people who might donate money or show up to events. And uh, they were, they are, uh, you know, as their name suggests, they were really trying to tread a middle ground. They're, they don't support the industry, but they're not, they didn't call themselves the anti-drilling alliance. The idea was, you know, trying to meet people where they're at and, uh, you know, who might support the industry, but, you know, but would be willing for reasonable, uh, you know, regulations that would do, make it responsible so it wouldn't have such an impact. Um, they had, they had very little success in getting local traction. Um, you know, many people just, as I mentioned, they supported the industry and not just because it made them money, but because they, you know, they, they, on the whole, they were, they were not that concerned about climate change. They were cynical of the Department of Environmental Protection and environmental regulations at the state and federal level. And so fracking also kind of jibed with their political sensibilities. Um, and so, so people were inclined to think that those who were against fracking were um, urban liberals, uh, they were often called that, who, who, who didn't really, um, you know, who were, quote, outsiders. Whether that was true or not, there was the perception that if you were against drilling, you were not really from here. People often would use this phrase, like, they don't really get rural values. Um, and I mean, I'll, and the last thing I'll say is the one area where the, the local anti-drilling group really did have success was when they discovered that a beloved state forest, Loyal Sox State Forest, there's a part of it called Rock Run, very popular for swimming, for um, fishing, uh, that was going to be drilled. And, and, and when they, they discovered the stakes in the ground uh, that, you know, where the well pads were going to go, and they started a campaign to try to stop drilling in, in and around Rock Run. And that was an incredibly popular campaign. It became a statewide issue that roped in uh, politicians from all parts of the state. Uh, you know, huge protests in Harrisburg and, and in Williamsport, because a lot of people, even if they supported fracking, this was their favorite local spot to go fishing or go swimming. And so far, you know, fast forward 13 years later, that area has still not been drilled. And so while we still don't know if they're going to be able to stop it forever, that was their one major success was in getting, um, you know, getting the state to at least drag its heels on allowing drilling there. Did you while you were working on this book, did you get something about rural values that you didn't get before you started it? I, yeah, I do. And, 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 I, and I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that um, and I talk about this a lot in the conclusion of the book, is that um, it's, I mean, one thing I sort of thought is that my perception is that, my perception was, was that you know, there's this distrust, there's the distrust of government. Um, I mean, I was aware of the cynicism of government, but the one thing that I didn't really, wasn't really aware of um, was how there is, there's much more of a support for government at the local level, like county commissioners, board of supervisors. And, and so, and, and so what, and what I sort of learned about that, why, why that's the case is that People were really active. To me, coming from a much more urban place, I mean, I'm from Philadelphia and I've been living in New York City for, for t almost 20 years. Um, 
was how passionate people were about local politics. So a really run-of-the-mill uh, Board of Supervisor hearing about you know, how to spend the budget, whether we should replace a guardrail or a traffic light. You know, maybe in a, it would, would dozens of people would turn up and we're really educated about the issues. And so one of the things I really, I really learned to appreciate was that people re were really active in government and why they validated local government and why they didn't validate, you know, state or federal government is because they saw true democracy as something you yourself can participate in and shape. I mean, a lot of them knew their local representatives and were on a first-name basis with them. And the fact that you could run into them at the supermarket and even yell at them when you ran into them at the supermarket if you were upset with something that they did, that that was what democracy was to them or is to them. And so, so the distrust of government wasn't just the idea that any kind of regulation is bad. It's that they trust regulation if they know the regulators and if they get to play a part in making the rules. And how that relates to the environment, where I really feel like this was something I hadn't really thought about before, was while people might say, it's my property and I should be able to do whatever the heck I want, which implies that they don't believe in any restrictions on private property, that's not actually true. I would see people, for instance, turn up to oppose a cell phone tower going up in a neighbor's yard, and they would say, well, that's gonna affect my view shed, and I have to look at that, and that might affect my property value. And so what I realized is that People actually liked, so for instance, zoning, like if an area is zoned rural, and so then you want to preserve the rural character of an area, which means you're not going to allow a factory, you're not going to allow a parking lot, that people, a lot of people really liked and believed in zoning because they, and what that meant was that they saw something of a public good. They did, they did think beyond themselves, the public good of preserving rural character, the public good of preserving the tranquility of a residential area. And so even if that meant a restriction on how somebody else can use their property, that they believed that that was an acceptable restriction because it preserved this public good that made it a place that they loved. And so that made me think that, especially about this disconnect, for instance, between environmentalists and locals, because many locals didn't trust environmentalists, that if environmentalists would augment their focus on top-down federal and state regulations with a focus on empowerment of communities to control environmental land use uh, issues locally through zoning, um, through, you know, through uh, municipal uh, constitutions, I think that they could find a way to bring rural residents on board. A lot of the people I met would consider themselves to be land stewards and love the environment. They're not against environmental protection. They want to be a part of environmental protection and believe that a lot of that regulation ought to be made and enacted at the local level. Did New York State ever open up for fracking? No. Uh, New York State, so, so New York State had a moratorium on fracking um, in a, you know, that was enacted in, I believe, 2008, while, while regulators looked into how safe or unsafe it is, and activists were successful in pressuring Albany to turn that moratorium into a ban in 2014. And so there has not been fracking at all in New York State. So comparing New York State's experience to Pennsylvania's experience, is Pennsylvania any better off for having opened up to fracking? In my opinion, no. Um, I mean, if you, you know, if you look now, there was very few uh, jobs created that are still here, um, very few new businesses created that, that um, you know, have held on. And actually, unfortunately, not only has New York State benefited by not having any of the environmental damage, 
they've ironically benefited from Pennsylvania's fracking. Um, the the biggest, you know, the biggest while while New York has banned fracking, the biggest single source of heating in New York State is fracked gas from Pennsylvania. And so New York State has not had to deal with any of the environmental harms, but actually gets to consume the gas that Pennsylvania is creating while local rural residents are experiencing the environmental harms of it. Did you talk to many people who leased their land to the Marcellus Shale companies and are perfectly happy with it and they ended up financially better off? Uh, I'll break your question in two parts. That wound up financially better off? Yes. Um, and that's the one area where I will say um, it's hard. If you look at the level of unemployment or income, like average income, you don't see any bump in Lycoming County from fracking that has lasted. But if you look at particular individuals, People who lease, let's say, 100 acres, you lease 100 acres for $1,000 an acre, and then they wound up extracting gas from underneath your property, and you got 12.5% of royalties off of that gas, that's life-changing money. I mean, George Hagemeyer, who I've already mentioned, um, his first check for, for the he has six gas wells hosted on his property, he has 77 acres, his first check, which was for one month of production, was $34,000. That's life-changing money. This is a guy who is paying for his granddaughter's college. He bought a new car for himself and a new car for both of his granddaughters. So there are individual property owners that made life-changing money, and I, I want to be clear about that. Um, but as far as the other part of your question, people that are perfectly happy, I did not meet those people. I believe that some of them existed, but, um, you know, and again, I think George is a nice example here. When I met George, right when they were beginning drilling on his property, he was perfectly happy. He actually said to me that he wished he could be in a commercial for the petroleum company, Anadarko, because he just was so excited about fracking, and he felt like they were treating him so well. Um, but by the end, he was incredibly upset with them. He was even showing up at township meetings wanting to tell other people about his horrible experiences in the hopes that they might learn something from it because he just couldn't believe all the ways that they restricted the way he used his own property. A security guard at the entrance of his own driveway telling him, you can't come in and out of your driveway right now. You know, the, as I, I already mentioned some of the other things. He didn't know they could withdraw hundreds of thousands of gallons of water from his creek every day. And so there was all these kind of insults to his land sovereignty. Um, one time, for instance, too, they were all done drilling. It was hooked up to a well. Everything was quiet. And then all of a sudden, all these trucks come. He didn't even give a notice in his mailbox or on the phone. And they set up these trailer, these trailer homes on his well pad. It turns out that they were making a so-called man camp where a bunch of gas workers were going to live while they fracked a neighboring property. And they were allowed to do that because that was in his lease. He didn't know that. So here he is. He finally thinks he's done and everything's calming down six months later. And now he's got dozens of people he doesn't know living in his backyard. And so a lot of people that I met, even if they still enjoyed the money and didn't want fracking banned, I, people were pretty upset. Um, with the way the petroleum industry treated them. Did many people who made life-changing money move away? No. Um, you know, and again, I can't really put statistics. I mean, I got to know a relatively small group of people really well. I didn't survey, you know, uh, everybody. But I think that um, most of the folks, I, I don't know anyone that moved away. I mean, I had heard about one person who actually sold and, you know, made millions of dollars and left. But um, as I mentioned, Actually, you asked me right to kick off this episode. Um, this land is ancestral. And even people that made money, like if we go back to George, 
um, one of the things, the biggest thing George did with his money was he set aside the biggest chunk of it as a trust tied to the land that his sip, that his uh, inheritance only get to keep and use if they keep living on the property. And so a lot of people that made this money saw this as a way to ensure that the, the, the land stayed in the family because, you know, their children might want to move away and might see the property tax on this 100 acres as a millstone. But now if, if this property is generating money, this might make it something to hold on to. And so for a lot, and there was actually, I'll name one other, one other anecdote. There was a, 10 siblings who inherited their parents' farm. None of them were farming. None of them were living on it. But they had, they had this beloved estate, and they were thinking about selling it. They just said, you know, this is a lot of acreage. What are we going to do with it? And now with the royalties it's generating, they, they, they're putting the money in a trust to maintain the taxes. And then there's enough money left over that each of them gets to make a certain amount of money to make their life a little bit easier. And so I really didn't see it as an opportunity for people to cut bait and leave. But actually, people saw this as something that ensures that the land stays in their family for generations to come. Is Marcella Shale done now? Is the story over? Or if gas prices go up, can they just turn the tap on again? You know, I think it's premature to say it's over. I do think as gas, and they are creeping up, you will see more activity. But um, if you look at the broader trends, uh, the broader trends are away from fossil fuels. So I don't think there's ever going to be a boom like there was in 2011 and 2012. I mean, for instance, you have... You know, you have some shareholder revolts that have been in the news a lot, where 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 shareholders of petroleum companies are demanding that they move the companies move away from fossil fuels more quickly. You've got companies that fought for ten or even twenty years to get the permits for pipelines to ship natural gas that have now canceled those pipelines because they see they forecast that it's not going to be economically viable in even ten years, let alone twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, the lifespan of those pipelines. And so I don't think that they're ever going to come back. I don't think Marcellus is ever going to come back to what it was. Um, I do think you're going to see fluctuations, um, little, you know, little peaks and valleys as the price goes up and down. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Colin Gerald Mack. He is the author of this book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom and Community in an American Town. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.